0: Father, again, we thank You for the opportunity to be here and to study Your Word. As always, we ask that You would give us uh, the true meaning of Your Word, that You'd give us insight, and we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week in chapter 7, they had the sin of Ai to deal with, they had the anger of God that needed to be appeased. And so, in here in chapter 8, understandably, Joshua was probably a little bit hesitant to engage in this battle against Ai, because this is now the second confrontation with Ai. The first one obviously didn't end well. They were in retreat because of the sin. And, you know, many times, uh, trouble from within probably is more discouraging than trouble from without. And, you know, certainly that's what Joshua had to deal with as they confronted Achan about his sin. But God does reassure him that he is with him and that they are to go on and declare war against Ai, And of course, this time God does promise success. In 1 John one nine, the Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin." So even though we obviously must take sin of utmost seriousness, which is what they did with regard to the sin of Achan, nevertheless, they need to move on. Um, that's, you know, that's what we have to do. We can't dwell on it. Um, Jesus died to forgive our sins, and forgiveness is not only attainable but is promised. Uh, years ago, Pastor preached a message about um, you know that we shouldn't be beating up beating ourselves up over our past sin, and it was a very good message. It's a very worthwhile message, one that we need to hear. Uh, we can't undo the past. We can't go back and, and redo it. We need to move on, and that's what God is encouraging them to do. They have to move on. They've done what they were supposed to do. They've dealt with the sin. And we see here in verse 1 that Joshua relies on God as his commander, not merely a, a council of men. And then we also have here in this verse that God t- tells him to take all the people of war with thee. Now, we did point out in chapter 7 that um, one of the suggestions had been given by those that had sent to, to look at Ai was that they didn't need so many men. They only they said that they only needed to send up a few thousand men. And... Um, You know, here they, they take all the men. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, again, I think in chapter seven, it wouldn't have mattered how many men they had sent. They still would have met with, you know, the demise that they faced because this, you know, God was not in it. The sin hadn't been dealt with. And so, you know, this may be an indication that they hadn't taken enough men, but just because they, you know, if they had taken more, they still wouldn't, I don't think they still would have obtained victory because of the sin that they hadn't dealt with. And in verse number two, God allows them now to take the spoil, to take the things from Ai for themselves. The prohibition of taking the spoils of Jericho was because God demands the first fruits, but here now he allows them to to take of the spoils. And, you know, we must obey God if he's going to provide for us. That's something that Achan didn't do. God's treasury is filled before their houses are filled. God's needs are met before theirs are met. And the other thing that is really quite remarkable about this is that not much time has passed. You know, whether or not this has been a matter of a few days or a few weeks, Achan, if he had been patient, if he had waited on God's timing, he probably would have received much more from the spoils of the city of Ai than he had ever received from those, you know, those things that he took out of Jericho. And I mean, what a great lesson to you know, to wait on God and wait on God's timing and to be obedient. I mean, it just is such a shame that he, you know, that he wasn't able to see. I mean, I, I would imagine that he could have anticipated that, that, uh, you know, the rule wasn't going to be in place for every city that they encountered. You know, they weren't going to be forbidden from taking anything from every city. And so he just was impatient and couldn't wait. And go back to chapter 7, verse 24. We see in this verse, it says, go down to the middle of the verse, it says his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And some people see there that that's probably an indication that Achan was, you know, he, he was a man of some resources. He wasn't poor. He wasn't poverty stricken. He didn't live below the poverty line, which is all the more reason that it was senseless for him to have done what he did. Go back to Verse 21. You see that in Achan's own words, he admits that the reason for his having taken those things was covetousness. He doesn't claim poverty. He doesn't say, I took those things because I was fearful or scared that I wasn't going to be able to provide for my family. He just admits that he was covetous. 1 Corinthians 5.11 tells us that we are not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be covetous. And that's a pretty difficult verse to apply, I, in, at least in my estimation. How do we measure covetousness? How do we decide whether or not someone is has crossed the line in being covetous to the point where we should break fellowship with them, to where we are, you know, not to keep company with them? It is difficult. Other sins aren't so difficult, um, you know. If a lot of times it's not so difficult to tell whether someone's a drunkard, you know, or, or various other sins. But covetousness seems to be a little bit tricky. But I think there are some red flags. Is stuff all you think about? Is that all we think about? Is that, does that consume our time? The, you know, the acquisition of more stuff. Colossians 3.5, as we looked at last week, covetousness is an act of worship. It's idolatry. It's worshiping things in the place of God. Hebrews 13.5 defines covetousness as discontentment. The sin of discontentment goes all the way back to the garden. God said, of every tree of the garden you may eat. We don't even know how many trees that was. He said, there's just this one tree that you cannot eat. And that was, of course, the serpent's tactic to use against Eve was to convince her that she needed to be discontented, that God was somehow holding withholding something good from her, and so she was, you know, she was introduced to discontentment. You probably all heard the pretty popular saying: John D. Rockefeller, at the time he was considered the richest man in the world, and somebody asked him how much more did he need, and he just said a little bit more. You know, and that was. You know, always going to be his answer. One commentator pointed out that those who already have the most seem to struggle with covetousness more than those who have less. I thought long and hard about that. I don't know how you prove that. I mean, it's very interesting to think about it and it may very well be true. I I don't know how, you know, again, I think covetousness is a very difficult thing to measure. I don't know how you go about concluding that that's a true statement. But nevertheless, it may be. I have a Jehovah's Witness friend at work that I frequently discuss things with, and I asked him, of course, you know, if you're familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't participate in any holidays, birthdays, you know, anything like that. And I asked him, what, why did they, why do they shun Christmas? And he said, we've turned it into a holiday focused on consumerism and materialism instead of Christ. He might be right about that. I mean, as a whole, certainly we can look around in our country and in our society and, you know, it's hard to argue against that. But I said, do you know, do you really need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? I mean, almost literally. I mean, do we not observe the birth of Jesus Christ because as a nation we've placed so much focus and emphasis on materialism? You know, but that's, you know, that's what they've chosen to do. But I don't think we need to stop celebrating Christmas just because That's what so many people are focused on. We need to be careful that that's not what we're focused on, that we're focused on, you know, the the birth of Christ. Questions or comments before I move on? Trying to do a better job of not just, you know, not being interactive. Well, verse number three God gives Joshua the strategy of ambush. And Joshua implements that plan. And exactly how many how many of the details are left to to the implementation of that plan, you know, we don't really know. Certainly God gives us assignments and he you know, he doesn't give us all of the details all the time. You know, he gives us something to do and and you know le- leaves it to us to to carry out that plan. Um Down in verse number 8, if you look at the last half of verse number 8, Joshua continues as he relays these instructions to the people. He says at the last half of verse number 8, according to the commandment of the Lord shall ye do. And so it does seem that there were probably quite a few details of this this strategy, this ambush, this war plan that were given directly to Joshua from the Lord. And so, you know, we don't know exactly how much of this plan Joshua... You know, provided the details for, but he was very careful to make sure that you know that it was the Lord's plan that he was implementing. Certainly not his own idea. In verse number three, we see Joshua chose out thirty thousand mighty men of valor. Sent them away by night. They go hide under the cover of darkness. Many advantages of war are are gained in darkness. In verse number four, Joshua tells them to hide behind the city. Not too far behind, so that they're going to be able to. to they're going to, you know, they need to be ready to overtake the city very quickly. Some of this plan, as as you know, you study these verses here in chapter eight. It, it it's not completely clear as to exactly how this ambush was supposed to work. There's there's a little bit of confusion and disagreement, but it does appear that they went around to around the city. They were. Uh, on the southern part of the city, down by the city of Jericho, and but they went around the city and approached the city from the north. There are many, many troops involved in this, this uh, campaign against Ai, and it does seem surprising that Ai wouldn't have detected this. There's really not a lot of room between Bethel and Ai, and it's clear that the that the troops went to the north side of AI by going between Bethel and AI and, and, you know, it's, but, you know, God sometimes blinds our enemies, which certainly is our, to our advantage. But there are just seem to be a lot of holes in this story. There, there seem to be a lot of situations where the people of AI clearly should have probably been on a little bit better guard and they seem to have, you know, were easily deceived and fooled and, you know, they had probably God probably had allowed them to certainly grow overconfident as as a result of what happened in chapter seven. You know, the people having gone and, and turned around and fled, you know, they probably had developed quite a bit of a bit of overconfidence, those in AI. Verse number five Joshua and all the rest, a seemingly large army approached the city just as before. That's that's Joshua's, you know, that's the strategy that he relays to the people. He says, "You know, we're going to make it look like, you know, the the result is going to be just like what happened chapter 7. You know, we're going to we're going to turn and run and, you know, make them think that we're fleeing just like we did the first time." The second confrontation is his example of God using the first defeat to Israel's good by giving the the uh the enemy of false sense of security. But the first confrontation is, is an example of God using Israel's enemies to chastise them. And that was something that God did pretty frequently in the Old Testament, using using their enemies as, as he frequently did to, to, to punish them. Verse number seven, those hiding behind the city will overtake them. And, and Joshua assures them in verse number seven again that this is the Lord's plan, not his. Always giving credit to the Lord. And then verse number 8, they are to set the city on fire, which will be the proof that they have overtaken it. Verse number 9, they hide on the west side of Ai, That the troops that he has sent to under the cover of darkness. Joshua stays with the majority. And then in verse number 10, Joshua rises early again and numbers the people. Uh, he and the elders lead the way. Some believe that Joshua actually participated in this battle using a sword, but I, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure about that. I mean, he's probably at least 82 at this point, and I think 82 then was probably a lot younger than 82 now. But uh, you know, that doesn't probably seem real likely. I mean, no offense, Chuck. I know he's about 82, but it doesn't seem real doesn't seem real likely that Joshua was you know in the thick of things. Particularly down in verse number 18, we see you know that his main task and assignment was to hold the spear like Moses had held the rod in 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 the battle against the Amalekites in Exodus but I mean it is you know it's interesting to think about we know Caleb certainly felt uh you know that he was you know he he said that he was as strong at 85 as he was at 40 and so you know I don't know if it's out of the question that Joshua may have participated in some of these battles but I don't know if it's real likely I know in 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 you know in history, I mean, some of the great generals were known for their leadership skills. I know George Custer, if you read about George Custer, you know the thing that really characterized him was that he never sent his men into battle. He always led them into battle. And that's, you know, that's very admirable. I mean, obviously, we know what eventually happened, but uh, nevertheless, you know, that, that was his leadership style. Verse number 11, the entire army acts like they're getting ready to confront the city. And that was part of the strategy. This was to, you know, again, to fool the Aites. They were going to, Joshua says, we're all going to go. We're going to approach the city, but then we're going to turn around and run. And in verse number 12, here Joshua says, "He and he took about 5,000 men and set them to lie in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. Now, some people are... Concern that this seems to be a little bit of a contradiction as to what we're told in verse number three, where it says Joshua chose out thirty thousand men of valor, and then in verse number nine, where he sent those men to lie in ambush between Bethel and Ai. And so the question is, whether it was there, you know, was there thirty thousand, or was there five thousand, or was there a total of thirty-five thousand? And I don't know that it's very clear. I, I tend to think that there were probably thirty-five thousand. Uh, I think one of the more popular views, which I, I think is probably likely, is that uh, Joshua had probably received word that the, the, the people of AI had recruited additional help from Bethel. And so after having received that word, he decides to send an additional 5,000 troops to, you know, make sure that they had sufficient resources to handle the, you know, the additional attack that may have come from Bethel again I don't know that it's really clear and I don't think it really makes a whole lot of difference you know as far as the big picture of the story um, verse number 13 when everybody was in their place joshua goes into the valley and you know some thinks some think that he went into the valley to pray I, I don't really think that was the case it, it kind of looks to me like he went into the valley purposely to to get noticed, you know, to let the king of Ai see that they were there, so that they would draw them out of the city. That that seemed to be part of the strategy. And but that's what happens. I mean, they they you know they are noticed, they are discovered, and so the 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 men of Ai rush out of the city, and you know the strategy works. They they turn and run, and they they get the the people of Ai to pursue after them, and that's what they do. I mean, they they. You know, they're, they're very foolish. The, the men of AI, they, you know, the Bible makes it clear that every last one of them left the city. Every single man left the city in pursuit of the, of the Israelites. So in verse 15, that's, you know, again, the, the strategies being implemented. The Israelites fake being scared and retreat in, in a seemingly disorganized way. They, they kind of, you know, send men in various directions. Again, that's all part of the ploy. That's all part of, you know, the, you know, trying to convince the men of AI that they are, you know, that, you know, they, they just don't know what to do. You know, they're, they're just beside themselves in fear. And it works. You know, that's, that's what that happens. They draw all the men out. Verse 16, they leave the city completely unguarded. This was foolishness like that of Pharaoh sending his men into the, into the, you know, sending his army into the Red Sea. And in verse number 17, this is where we we kind of have additional evidence that, you know, that Ai and Bethel had, you know, formed a coalition against Israel. And so, the, again, this might be the reason that Joshua felt the justification of sending additional troops as part of the ambush. And we see verse in here in verse 17, the city gates were left open. In verse number 18, this is where... Joshua has the, the symbolic task of holding the spear. Now, you know, it may have been to, for the, the soldiers to see, to, to, you know, know that, that Joshua was still in command and directing the battle. Um, you know, but it's, it, it appears to be very similar to the, to the incident that we had in the book of Exodus when they were fighting the Amalekites and Moses held up the rod and as long as he was holding up his hands and holding up the rod, God continued to give them the victory. And that's what happens here. As long as, as long as Joshua is holding up this spear god continues to give them the victory and there may have been you know some sort of a, a you know a flag or something on the spear to make to have made it easier to see and then verse number 19 those waiting in ambush they saw Joshua holding that spear and so that was their that was their cue to set the city on fire and then when they did that everybody else would know that the city had been that the city had been taken verse number 20 the men of ai of course now they they look back and they see that their city's on fire and so you know you can imagine their thought they know they've been tricked they know that uh, you know now they're they're surrounded on all sides and boy they're they're really in a predicament now they're they've got people coming from all sides and they've got nowhere to hide and now Joshua's army turns you know they were in retreat and now they turn around and they're coming back and so This would have just been, you know, mass confusion on the part of the Aites. And they're just going to, you know, you know, and verse 21 makes clear what happened. I mean, the Israelites kill all the men of Ai. They were able to just overtake every one of them. Verse 22 Those who those who have taken the city they now rush out and and against the men of AI and so again they they just don't have anywhere to go verse 23 they saved the king alive as as Joshua had commanded probably to make a public display of his execution to to humiliate him to let people see the the consequences of wickedness I mean none of the the people of AI were going to be able to witness the execution of their king because the, you know, it's clear they have already all been destroyed. And that's, that's verse number 24. Every person, man, woman, and child is destroyed. They're killed. This is the death sentence that God had pronounced. It seems harsh, but, uh, you know, again, we, we're not going to rehash everything we went over last week. This is, this is similar to what happened with the, this is exactly the same thing that happened with all of the people of Jericho being destroyed. And, you know, we're not going to question the righteousness of God. God is, you know the Bible's clear. God can be merciful to who He can be merciful to, and um, you know there are consequences for for actions. And this is what God had decided was was to happen to them. Verse number twenty five says there were twelve thousand that comprised all the everyone, the men, the women, twelve thousand people. So this this. Uh, Destruction is much less than that of Jericho. Jericho was a much larger city. And it really just illustrates the point that, um, you know, God was in it when they first approached Jericho. And so it didn't matter how many soldiers, you know, how many men, how many troops were in Jericho. God was in that, and so they, they had the victory. And yet here, you know, with Ai being a much smaller city, as we saw in chapter 7, God wasn't in it. And they, they couldn't get success. They couldn't have the victory. They just can't do it without the Lord's leading. Verse number 20 26, Joshua continued to hold the spear as God had commanded him. And in verse number 27, this is where they're, you know, we have the record that they were given the spoil, just like when they came out of Egypt. And, you know, we're not really told how it was distributed. It, it seems reasonable and logical to me that uh, that it was probably distributed so that everyone shared in it you know I I don't know why it wouldn't have been you know um, probably a fair and equitable distribution verse number 28 the city was burned just like it was supposed to have been and again you know some people might think this seems like a big waste Um, but God wanted Israel to build their own cities and you know the destruction of these cities was probably to eradicate the wickedness, to just make make it you know all that much more difficult, make it make it easy for Israel not to degenerate into the same types of things that they did. Just burn it all, get rid of it all, and start over afresh. In verse number twenty nine, we see that the king uh, is hanged on a tree. Now, most of the time in 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 the Bible. Um, when people were hanged, they were already dead. It wasn't really usually used as the means of execution. It was just used as a means of humiliation to, to let people see what had been done to someone. You know, in our day, we, we see that, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein was a particularly wicked king. And that's that's what happened to him. He was hanged. And I'm, you know, I've never done it. I would imagine. I, I think, if I remember correctly, you could probably go out, go out on YouTube and watch it. You know, and again, that was probably the the reason that it was done. You know, was to, you know, I understand that it was a fairly public execution, and again, that was to, to let people know. You know, kind of the same principle here that those are the consequences of wickedness. That those things will eventually be. That that's, you know, that's how it's going to be dealt with. And we see that according to the law that they took the body down, Deuteronomy 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23, Israelite law prohibited a body from hanging overnight. The body was to be buried so as not to defile the land. We see a parallel here in in uh, Galatians 3:13. You know, we might have a we might have a tendency to think, well, you know, that's that's pretty harsh. That's, you know, none of us, I'm sure, shed a tear when Saddam Hussein was hanged. And, you know, we would probably have the attitude, well, you know, he got what he deserved and, and you know, he did. Um, but, you know, lest we get too filled with pride, I mean, really, this is the, the death that we're all worthy of. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. Christ took our place on the cross. Um, you know, he was under the curse for us. So, you know, again, we probably don't want to get too certainly lifted up and puffed up thinking that, you know, somehow we're so much better because we are in some way undeserving of this punishment. You know, just, you know, yes, we haven't committed the crimes that these wicked kings did, but nevertheless, you know, the, the New Testament says this is really the, you know, this is really what all of us are deserving of. And then we see in then verse twenty-nine that his body was thrown at the gate. This was a common practice. Again, you know, kind of further humiliation. We we know in the book of first Samuel or Second Samuel or First Samuel that David did the same thing with the head of Goliath. He came and put it at the gate so that everybody could see it to make a you know a public mockery of of, of Goliath. And then we get to verse number thirty, and this is where, you know, this is really remarkable. There's really a shift here, you know, they stop. Um They pause for worship. You know, they go to Mount Evil, which is about 20 miles north. Um, They take time to worship the Lord, to praise and thank Him. Um, You know, instead of just pressing on and being about the next battle, you know, they recognize that it's important to do that. They stop and, and take time to worship. And, you know, we get busy in our everyday life, and we, you know, we come up with reasons and justifications for our you know, failure to worship and to set aside time to worship the Lord. And and we just, we can't do that. You know, we've got to, you know, take time in the midst of all that's going on. And, you know, Sundays and Wednesdays are but a small sacrifice. I mean, that's, you know, there's much time that we should be spending in prayer and studying God's word and worshiping. And the location here is very significant. Uh, Mount Ebel is part of the city of Shechem. And this is the place where God made the promises to Abraham. And this is the place where God renewed those promises to Jacob. And so really, you know, having this this worship service at this location really underscores God's faithfulness. It lets people see that God had brought them into the land and brought them to the exact place in which he had made the original promises to Abraham. And this is the place where Joshua chooses in chapter 24, 22 through 24, to give his farewell addresses, to come to the same place. And to, you know, really, again, just kind of underscore the the faithfulness of God. And that's what Joshua explains to the people, that God had made these promises to Abraham all of these hundreds of years earlier, and now these things are finally coming to pass. So the location of this is very significant. In verse number 31, they, they, Moses had commanded them twice to worship exactly in this way, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 20, and uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27. He had given them the instructions to make this altar. He had told them how to make the, the altar, just like it says here. They were to make the altar of unaltered stones. Stones, as he explained to them, that stones that had been altered were polluted if, you know, because of the, you know, God didn't want men altering the stones. They, they were to represent his holiness. And then they have, they have these two types of offerings, the burnt offerings and the, the peace offerings. In Leviticus chapter one, the burnt offerings signified their dedication and devotion to God, and in Leviticus chapter three, the peace offerings were so named because they signified the fellowship and the peace they had with God. And again, you know, we can certainly see the parallels in our, you know, today. We don't need to offer those sacrifices. Christ was that offering. Uh, he's the one that gives us peace with God. Verse number thirty-two: The law is renewed. You know, again, how sincere can our worship of God be without a commitment to obey Him? Uh, and by the way, the um, the altar is the fourth memorial in the in this book. There are seven memorials that we will come across before we complete the book. And, um, you know, some of them, the third one was there in verse number 29, where they raised that great heap of stones over that over that king, and then now that we have this fourth one here, which is this altar that they erect to worship the Lord. And in verse number 33, we see that they're, they make a, a great priority out of reading the entire law. Um, the word all is used five times in these three verses, 33 through 35. It's very, it's made crystal clear here in verse 33. It says, and all Israel and their elders and their officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark. And later on it says, as well the stranger as he that was born among them. Was, and, and then even further on it was, you know, for the women and the children and all the men. Every single person. God's word was important. It was supposed to be... Important to everyone. Everybody was to hear it. And they write on these stones, on this altar that they have made. They write the commandments on these stones for all to see. And you know, this was, this back in those days, they didn't all have a copy of God's word like we do today. I mean, what a privilege for us. Um... You know, I can't even imagine what life, you know, I've had a Bible in my possession my entire life. I mean, I've had, you know, multiple Bibles in my possession. Um, So, you know, I wouldn't even know what it was like to, to grow up in a society where, you know, the only exposure that you have to God's Word is hearing someone else read it or, you know, maybe occasionally getting to see a copy of it. Um, it's a great privilege to have it. It's a tragedy that don't you know for people that don't appreciate it. I mean, you see people come to church, they don't have a Bible. Uh, you know, they ought to have a Bible. they ought to they ought to consider it a great privilege to to have God's word and to to look at it for themselves and to to follow along and to see that it it says what it really claims to say. And you know these people didn't have that privilege. I mean, many people, you know it wasn't until that many hundreds of years ago that many people had the opportunity to have the the privilege that we do you know we should cherish God's word they make a big deal out of it because it is a big deal it's it's a it's a great opportunity for them they you know we, this is the second time in the book of Joshua where we have come across the the emphasis on the importance of everybody participating in the worship service you know it wasn't just the the adults, you know, I mean if you look there in in uh, verse number 35 at the towards the end of the verse it says the little ones and you know we we're not going to go through it all again we we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 and and several other locations in scripture several weeks ago but the bible's very clear that the children were to be, you know, to participate in these worship services. You know, and again we, you know, we you know we always made it a practice, you know, with our children that, you know, they weren't going to come to church and it wasn't going to be a time to drag out coloring books and do all these other kinds of things. You know, it wasn't time for them to be entertained. It was a time for them to learn how to sit still and to learn to listen to God's word. And that's how they're going to learn God's word. And, you know, if you have a Thompson Chain reference Bible, there's a really interesting study. If you follow it through, you can see all of the references in Scripture to the to the uh, you know to little ones and to children and their role in the worship service, and I think it's very easy for us to forget about that. It's very very easy for us to forget about the importance of that. You know, we we have a tendency to think that a lot of these things, you know, just pertain to adults, and that's just simply not the case. And I'm and you know by the way I said several weeks ago. I mean I can reiterate. I'm very grateful for the ministries that we have in this church for the children, and I'm grateful for those that that you know work in those ministries and take the time to prepare those lessons and you know see to it that that's what they're doing that they're learning God's word that they're not here just to you know eat cookies and you know and you know do whatever they think is fun and then we see here in verse number 33 that they surround the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant contained the, the original tables of stone, it symbolized God's presence among them. It just, you know, really kind of set the focus for their worship service It let them know that what they were doing was they were focusing on the Lord. This wasn't, you know, this certainly wasn't a time to exalt Joshua, you know, or to have the the attention focused on him. This was, you know, a time to... To focus on the Lord. And of course, Joshua, you know, we see that Joshua, it says there in verse 34, it says, and afterward he read all the words of the law. Joshua was, uh, you know, it was very important to him to do that. I mean, he wasn't just, you know, this would have been a long process. Um, this wouldn't have been a short service. Um, if you go, it says, they, you know, there in verse 34, they read all the blessings and the cursings and I went back and, and read those in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the longest chapter in the book. There's, um, you know, like 68 verses, and there's just a tremendous amount that God has to say. Of course, you know, all the blessings are for the, the obedience, and all of the cursings are for the disobedience. And, you know, they read it all. I mean, you know, we get, sometimes we get focused on time, and we can't run, you know, we don't, you know we get impatient that the preacher runs a few minutes over you know and many times in the in the old testament when we when we see these worship services taking place you know I mean really there's hardly any other way to put it. there's just almost no regard for time you know it's just that's they take as they take as long as it takes they do what they do what needs to be done and again we don't have time to go back and look at all of the the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 one thing I think that, that that I that kind of stood out to me as I was reading this and and I think you know my mind was probably focused on that because of the uh, you know the events of chapter 7 with regard to Achan, you know with regard to his his covetousness and and his stealing and his taking of the silver and the gold and then we have here in chapter 8 the you know the god providing for them the spoils of of Ai You go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28 with the cursings and so many of the curses are associated with debt. You know, God keeps reiterating to the people that if you're going to be disobedient to me, you're going to be in debt. You're going to be the borrower and you're not going to be the lender. And if, you know, and if you're going to be disobedient to me, your enemies are going to be the lender. And, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's To me, it's just very significant, you know, that you know God says you're going to be the head and not the tail, and all these types of things, and their crops are going to fail. And you know, people want to have it both ways. I mean, they just want to have it one way. You know, they want they want the blessings, but they don't want the curses. You know, they don't want to be obedient to the Lord, but they want the blessings as if they were obedient to the Lord. And so, it's just a good reminder for us to go back and you know to read those things now and then, and particularly you know look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, and God says. Those things are conditional. They're not unconditional. You don't receive these blessings just because you live a life however you please. God says you receive these blessings because you live according to the commandments that I've given and because you're obedient to me. All right. Well, that's about all I have. If anybody has anything they want to share or any comments they want to add, we're not quite.